You take your Bibles and open up to the Gospel of John, John chapter 8. John chapter 8. For me, uh, this was kind of a fun passage this week, uh, not that it isn't every week, um, but there are sometimes it's where it's so interesting um, when you're just struck. I was mentioning this to the men on Thursday morning when you have John 8, verse 12, where you immediately want to go in and write a whole sermon on Jesus being the light of the world. I mean, you have light. You have every cross-reference, one of which we'll read at the beginning here, from the very beginning of Scripture. And you go, you can build a whole sermon there. And then it never gets mentioned again. And you have to go a little bit on the road of discovery, and you feel like you're Sherlock Holmes a bit of going, okay, whoa, whoa, whoa. He says he's the light of the world, and then no one talks about him being the light of the world again. And I think just building that out this morning, I think hopefully um, you'll see, as I came to see, it feels like a detour, super similar to the woman at the well, where we're talking about water, and then all of a sudden, we're talking about worship. You're going, wait a minute. I thought we were talking about water. And now we're on to worship. And here, I feel the same way. We're talking about Jesus is the light of the world. And then we're talking about he's from the Father and his relationship with the Father. And you're going, what's the connection here? So hopefully this morning, uh, we have a little journey where we, we kind of see those connections and how it all comes together. And that although maybe they wanted to take him on a detour, Jesus does exactly what he intends with them. So I'm going to read and then pray this morning. I'm not going to read our passage, which we will go through uh, these, Lord willing, 18 verses, but just Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. And in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. And then God said, let there be light. And there was light, and God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning one day. Father, we just thank you for the opportunity to come to your word. Thank you for your word that is a light, a lamp unto our feet, showing us where we should walk. That is how we should live our lives. Lord, how we can, the way we saw early in John with John the Baptist reflect your light, reflect the very glory that you have shown us in your son, Jesus, most glorified both in him being lifted up, his crucifixion and his resurrection. Lord, that we see your grace, your kindness, your mercy, your steadfast love, your faithfulness, Lord. Help us to see those things this morning as we see the life of Christ and the way in which he is truly not a light, but he is the light. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Well, I want you to think about this sentence that light is not the absence of darkness. So light is not the absence of darkness. Because if you think of it in the reverse, darkness is the absence of light. You go, that makes sense. Because when nothing is here, it's dark. But not so with light. I think of the title I gave this message, What Does Light Have to Do With Truth? And I was thinking about that a lot early this week and 
really the core similarity that I see is independence or source. Light is a source. It's something in and of itself. You can cover it, but it's still there. You can suppress the truth, Romans 1, but it's still true, right? You can say, I don't believe or I don't want to believe, but there are laws, even natural ones like gravity, which you can say it doesn't exist. You can say you want to fly, but gravity's true. No matter what you believe, it's source, it's independent. And think, when you think of Jesus in these massive I am statements in the gospel of John, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. And he's going to go on to use multiple of these. And we're going to see even that phrase, I am, is so important. And of course, says something so true that they may not understand everything about what Jesus is claiming, but they know, at least the Jewish leaders know what he is saying when he says, I am. He's claiming this kind of independence. And even with this picture of saying, I am the light, he's saying, I am source. I exist. I am, that is, as Yahweh told Moses, I am. And Jesus, just like in John chapter five, why are they angry with him? Yes, because he's healing on the Sabbath, although that wasn't wrong, according to the Old Testament. But they're angry with him. It says in John chapter five, I think verse 18 there, because he was claiming to be equal with God. And that continues here in our section 12 through 30. It's this same issue, the same challenge, but it's becoming more heated and more heated because of this claim. And I think they kind of want to cover Jesus. They want to silence him, right? But just like in the morning, when you wish it's simple as maybe throwing a cover over or it, can I get that shining light away? It, it's still there no matter what you do. And Jesus is still here in front of them no matter what they do because he is true. He is independent. He is the I am. And if you just look ahead to next week, which we're going to see a lot of interaction with Judaism next week, just to show you where this is headed. Verse 56 Jesus says, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. And so the Jews said to him, and again, when you see Jews here, Jewish leadership chiefly, said to him, you are not yet 50 years old. Have you seen Abraham? They're just doing the math going, he's been dead a really long time. I don't think he knew you. And Jesus responds, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And so we're gonna begin this morning and We'll finish up in a couple weeks when we get through this section. But I want you to see this Abraham, this Old Testament, what he's pulling on threads, light, Genesis chapter one, let there be light. He's pulling on all kinds of threads they would understand very well. And you go, do they think he's saying he is God? Is he claiming to be equal with God? And I would say, well, they seem to think so, verse 59, because what do they do? Do they get down and worship? No. Therefore, they pick up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Which, of course, you're wondering, how did all that work? I don't know. Maybe it was supernatural, maybe not. But it was, we saw in chapter 7, it's not yet his time. Good news this morning, if you look at verse 30, our last verse this morning, it ends more positively. So we can smile a little bit because even though there's so much judgment here and rejection, as he was speaking, verse 30, these things, many believed in him. 
So I find that encouraging that in the midst of all of this, there are those that God is calling that he's going to give eyes to see the light. And that's my prayer this morning as well, that you would see, have eyes to see Jesus as the light. I think the big thing going on here in this section is that Jesus is claiming that he is the light of the world and that that light will shine brightest in his atoning death. That he is the light of the world and that it will shine brightest in his atoning death. We're gonna see four major points that Jesus is gonna draw out here. And number one is Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus is the light of the world, which is straightforward, but there's all kinds of things you can break down. For example, we're gonna go on and on with all, all kind of the observations or details, but it is interesting to note that he does not say that he is a light, but he says he is the light. And as we learn in grammar, those little articles make all the difference. He's just not another one. And even you think, go back to 58, where they pick up stones and they want to kill him. If he had said, he's just a light, he's just a teacher, he's maybe even like John the Baptist. I'm not the light. I'm simply pointing you to the light. They don't pick up stones. It's because he says, I am the light. So pick up with me here in verse 12. We're going to stop and we're going to look at this one more than the rest. And then I think give some context here because we haven't been in here for a couple weeks to see the context of seven and eight in the Feast of Booze. But he says in verse 12, then Jesus again, and that even that connection, then Jesus again. And we talked a couple weeks ago about looking at um, this verse 52, 53 in that split. And I think that 12 goes with verse 52. And so when the then Jesus again spoke, he's connecting it probably to that exact same time frame, for sure within probably days, if not within the same discourse or hours of the discourse that we saw a few weeks ago when he talks about that he, if anyone is thirsty, let him come and drink, that he is going to grant from the innermost being that those who believe in him will flow rivers of living water. And it's that same context, the Feast of Booze, the end of the week of which we come here in twelve. So then again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. And then he says a few things. If you follow me, that is, if you follow the light, he who follows me will never walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. It's really a massive statement. It's very similar to the water statement that if you are thirsty, that is, if you have ran around looking for answers in every place and, so, and your soul feels parched like the desert and you want hope and forgiveness, Jesus says, come and drink for me and I will give you a flowing river, right? That's flowing, that's continually flowing from your heart, from your innermost being flowing out. That is, it's never ending. It's an ever flowing spring. And the same thing here, that if you follow this light, it will never, ever again, will you walk in darkness. Why? Because when you have light, right? You can't have them together. You can't have darkness. Something can't be true and false. Something can't be light and dark. You have light and therefore there is no darkness. The context here of this bold claim is chapter seven. And you remember he didn't go up to the Feast of Booths, Feast of the Tabernacles, because he said it was not yet his time. So he didn't go up immediately, but he waited until it was appropriate for him to go up, probably to avoid kind of that confrontation that would have put him in prison or they would try to put him to death too quickly because that's going to happen six months from now. 
So that gives you kind of a time frame. We're in the fall, we're in this feast here. If you remember that the, the Feast of Booze was a celebration, a remembrance of God's faithfulness in the wilderness when they dwelled in tents. So they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. You go back to your Old Testament, you go back to um, Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and they lived in these tents. And this was established as a remembrance that they would remember God's faithfulness that he provided for them, whether it would be in the manna. But here, not only the water that flowed from the rock, which I think is where you get the water ritual of the Feast of Tabernacles that we saw kind of 37 through 39, but also, you remember, how did they travel in the wilderness? In the day, they looked up and they saw a pillar of fire that they followed and then at night, the cloud, or excuse me, cloud during the day and the pillar of fire during the night. I don't know what a pillar of fire at night looks like, but I know that even for me, I don't live very far in the country anymore, but if you get a little further out, when you get away from the city lights, it doesn't take much light to kind of go boom and just invade the darkness. And so when you're in a wilderness with no external lighting, and for individuals who've never seen really anything outside of, say, a candle and fire, and then there is a pillar of fire. Just imagine what that would look, that picture of just, look, it is there. It's bright and it's glowing. And they could see, and God was there, and he was present, and present in this pillar of fire. That's probably what then led to, historically, during the Feast of Booze, you have a water ritual we looked at a few weeks ago. You also have a lighting ritual. The two things that were really big, and this is kind of the flow of seven and eight. And Jesus is using them to teach and to explain and saying, you look at this water. I provide, God provided water for you in the wilderness. I am that provision. I am the thing that will give you sustenance, which you need even more than say food. You need water. And here, same thing. He's giving you direction. He is the light. He is the pillar of fire. He's saying, I am the light of the world. And so there, just to give you the picture, even probably the setting, uh, for sure we know it happened early in the festival on the first evening. It's not quite sure if it happened throughout the whole thing because we're at the end of the festival. So he's referring back or even there, they have recently seen the whole temple light up. The ceremonies suggest Jesus is consciously fulfilling this, showing this symbolism, which I think goes back to the biblical context of the pillar fire. And you'd see these massive lamps in the temple court of the woman, which this is where Jesus would be teaching, where they would celebrate underneath the light and all of Jerusalem would look up at the temple mount and see the light. So the closest thing to what they would ever have known as a bright city. And so if you're from a smaller town, you get to those bright cities. I mean, specifically, I can think of when I kind of fly in and Lord willing, everything goes to plan and going out to the pastor's conference at the beginning of next month. And if that first evening, if you ever have kind of crested the valley in Los Angeles and you kind of mountains and you can't see much and you get up to the top of the valley and you overlook this valley with 10 million people, right? It's an amazing thing. Even for us who have seen big cities and here they've seen maybe nothing like it before. They come together. They're all in Jerusalem for the first time. And Jesus is saying, remember, you see that light, that source? That is me. I am the light of the world. Notice, I am the light. So not a light, the light, but also he says, right, I am the light of what? The world. It's one of John's big key terms that he's not simply the light of the Jews. 
And this is true whether you look at the prophets or the minor prophets, always looking to this, or you look back to the Abraham covenant, he is ultimately going to be a blessing to all the nations. And so it's here an interesting note. He's saying that I am the light of the world, that there is no other light. I think it's an exclusive claim, but also that there's no privileged group or nation, which for many of them is going to be in and of itself offensive. What do you mean? I'm the light of the Jews. No, he's the savior of the world. He's the light of the world. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation. You see the independence of this light. And that as well, you notice out of this phrase, I am the light of the world, he then says, if that's true, then if you follow it, which is me, if you follow me, the text says, you will never walk in darkness. And so he connects this reality, I am the light with discipleship and this concept of following. If you follow me, you will never experience darkness again. Later on, John chapter 12, verse 25, it's going to say, he who loves his life loses it. He who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. And anyone who serves me, he must follow me. Where I am, where my servant, or where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the father will honor him. So even then he's starting to, what does it mean? What does it mean to believe and trust? And that part of that is saying, you pick up your cross and you follow him. It's light as following. But not only does he say here that he who follows me never walk in light, but he says within that, you will then possess the very light. You will have the light of life. And this goes back to Genesis chapter one. This source, light represents life throughout the Old Testament. They were trained Psalm 27, one to sing, the Lord is my light and my light. Salvation. Psalm 119, all about the word of God. It says the word of God, the law of God is a light to guide the path of those who cherish instruction. And even Isaiah 49, 6 says that the servant of the Lord was, anoint, was appointed as not only a light to the Jews, it says, but it was appointed as a light to the Gentiles that he might bring God's salvation to the ends of the earth which is why Jesus here, even as we're going to encounter their law, as it were, he's going to bring you back saying, listen, if you understand, understood your law, which you seem to not, he was always going to be a light to the whole world, not just to the Jews. And even more so for us here this morning who are the readers of John, you go back to John chapter one, verse four and five. You mean, you remember, it says in him, that is the word, Jesus, John chapter one, verse four, in him was life. And the life was what? The light of men. And the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not overtake it. To have the light is to have Jesus. And there is no light and therefore there is no life apart relationship with him. I even love how you look towards the end of Revelation, Revelation chapter 21. And you remember when we looked at the city there during our study last year. This city, this new Jerusalem, the city, it says, Revelation 21, verse 23, the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it for the glory of God has illumined it and its lamp is the lamb. That is just Jesus. It's the light of the world. 
and the nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it and its gates will never be closed by day for there will be no night there and they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it and nothing defiled and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it. That is, no darkness, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. So Jesus is making a pretty radical claim of which there's imagery surrounding the Feast of Booths, not only the pillar of fire by night that Israel followed, but even the lighting ceremony that would have been performed that very week or even that very day. And he says to them and begins his teaching, which we're, we'll see here that he does this, teaching them. He's going to, see verse uh, 20 he talks about being in the treasury as he was teaching in the temple and he begins that by saying this radical statement but as I said at the beginning it feels like there's a detour or a departure because they're simply going to challenge the claim and Jesus is going to respond to the claim by emphasizing his relationship with his father and so therefore he explains that he is the light of the world, but also secondly, his second major point here is that there are actually witnesses because the challenge is going to be you have no authority in and of yourself and he's going to say, well, yes, I do. But even beyond that, the father testifies of me as well. And so there's witnesses that Jesus is the light of the world. Really the most powerful witness you could have, which is God himself. And so he goes on here in verse 13 to explain it comes up because the Pharisees challenge and this is even, you go, do they understand what he's saying? And they seem to understand just like in chapter five, he's claiming equality with God. And so they challenge him, the Pharisees. They said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your witness is not true. They're saying, listen, you, you can make that claim all you want. Who else is here to make that claim? I'm sure they're trying to maybe get him to do something. And you'd think maybe Jesus here would perform a miracle, but he doesn't. He simply goes back to say, look at my relationship with my father. And he answers them in verse 14. Even if I bear witness about myself, my witness is true. For I know, so why is it true, he says? Because I know where I came from, where I am going, and you do not know where I came from and where I am going. Which is simply to say the obvious truth that you seem to not know anything <laughs> about me and I know exactly who I am. You judge according to the flesh, that is. You judge on the exterior. They're saying you don't look like the Messiah. You don't meet our expectations as the Messiah. Jesus is saying, I'm not judging anyone, which is his way of saying, I am not judging in the way that you judge, which has even more biblical precedent. You go back to 1 Samuel 16 and you think of once Saul, who they wanted a king, Israel, like all the other nations. And who'd they pick? Saul, but if you remember, because he's tall. He was head and shoulders above everyone. He looked like a king. They said, make Saul the king. Do you have any other internal qualities? Not necessarily. In fact, he shows up as very, very fearful. But when he is rejected and Samuel is to anoint a new king in 1 Samuel 16 and they go you see there even Samuel wants to anoint one of the brothers but unlikely the younger brother God says pick David anoint David why because God doesn't judge on the externals but he judges on the internal he judges on the heart and so on here even Verse 16, he continues, but even if I do judge, my judgment is true. That is to say, when he does do it, 
it's not based on false factors. It's not based on something external, but represents the true person because he knows every heart. And why is it true? This is where he brings in the law, right? He's saying, because I am not alone in it, but I and the Father who sent me. Therefore, he says, verse 70, even in your law, it has been written that the witness of two men is true. So I am he who bears witness about myself. And the Father who sent me bears witness about myself. And the Father who sent me bears witness about me. And so they attack him again and go, well, then where is your father? And whether this is a snide remark, maybe they've done a little digging, saying we kind of know a little bit, which even then I'd say that it's even a greater judgment on them because then they might've even figured out, well, you're from Bethlehem because they accuse him of being from Galilee and that's not where the king comes from, but Jesus is born in Bethlehem where the true king comes from. But here even, they question his legitimacy perhaps, or even they might question, well, then why isn't God present? And Jesus says simply, you know neither me nor my father. That is the point being, if you knew the father, you would know me, which is quite the statement to those who view themselves as God-fearing and God's covenant people saying, you don't know me, that means you don't know Yahweh. If you knew me, he says, you would also my father, or you would know my father also. And so you see the summary statement that he spoke those words in the treasury, in the temple. And as angry as they were, it's not his hour. And so they cannot get after him. Jesus explains, listen, there is a witness that I am the light of the world and there's none greater, which is the father, which is that thing that he's been going back to. Almost, I think this is probably the fourth discussion in the gospel of John with his relationship that starts in chapter one. Why? Because remember John's purpose. He's trying to show and demonstrate that Jesus is the son of God, that he comes from God. And I would even argue here, even more so, it goes back to source. Right, when it talks in John chapter one that he is the light, he comes from the Father. He's making that he is the light because he is God himself. What we see here in John chapter eight, again, with even the Pharisees question here that unbelief asks all the wrong questions. And you might even wonder here that the issue is they need more information. Um, they, they need more evidence you might even wonder where Jesus is coming or when God's coming out of the clouds and saying, this is my son and whom I am well pleased. Why doesn't he do that here? Because that is not what they are looking for. They don't have a heart of belief, rather unbelief and not too dissimilar to John chapter three and Nicodemus where his issue isn't so much tell me more. It's Jesus saying, listen, you have to be born from above. You have to be born again. And to use a different analogy here with light, he's saying, you need new eyes. You need eyes that will see the light and they do not have eyes to see the light. They have unbelieving eyes that are blinded to the truth. It's connected. I am the light of the world. And he's saying that it comes, as it were, from heaven, from the Father, through me. I am the representation of, 
or as we looked at one, I think 14 there um, as well, that he narrates God to the world. And so although this might look like here as we study a detour, it's nothing of the sort. Rather, it points back to the way Jesus is the light because he comes from the Father. He's going to the Father, as he'll explain, and he is one with the Father. There are witnesses to Jesus being the light of the world. Thirdly, verse 21, you'll see, if you do not see this light, there is consequence. If you do not see the light, you don't have eyes to see, you don't follow the light, he simply says, this is the reality, you will die in your sins. He doesn't use the word hell here, but this is the same idea throughout a lot of places. He's going to talk about hell as outer darkness. Same thing here. You're going to die in your sins. And oh, by the way, that's why you're not going to be able to find me because I'm going to my father, which is heaven. And you won't be there because you don't have eyes to see. And so he challenges them, but not without hope, as we'll see, which is always comforting because he does invite them by the end of this section. So thirdly, if you do not see the light, there is a radical consequence, which is you're, you will die in your sins, which is going to link back to then when you will see, how do you see him later here in a moment? But verse 21, it goes on to say, then he said again to them, I am going away and you will seek me and will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. Unless we continue to think, yes, there is misunderstanding, but I think it's intentional misunderstanding. It's mockery. And they mock and they say, verse 22, surely he will not kill himself since he says, where I am going, you cannot come. Part of that background is for, the, for them in Judaism, that would be the worst sin that one could commit. And they're thinking, he, this is person, and you can see even the later, is he crazy or as they'll accuse him in the, later here in eight, is he possessed by a demon? He's trying to tell them, you're sick, you need a physician. And I'm only going to be here a little while, which he's already told them once. And if you don't find me, you will die in your sin, which is why you can't follow him. So he keeps going, verse 23, saying to them, listen, this is, this is so, you see these themes throughout the gospel of John. You are from below. I am from above. And his statement there isn't to say I'm from heaven and you're from, say, hell or Hades. It is to say you're earthly. And Earth is darkness and covered in sin. And the consequence of sin is death and judgment. Hence, you need something from above. You need something not from this world because nothing in this world can save you. Therefore, he says, you are of this world, but I am not of this world, which is good news if you believe in him. Therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins sins. This is the first of two times where your translation probably uh, supplies the he. But it's supplied, it's from the text because he's saying I am he, but it's really, it's not there in the Greek. So what they would hear, I am the bread of life, right? I am the light of the world. And here when he says, for unless you believe that I am is what they're hearing. You'll probably See, he, at least in my translation, is italicized because it's supplied. But it is simply that I am. This is a Jewish audience. They know exactly what he's saying, that he's referring back to the name of Yahweh that was revealed to Moses. I am. It's huge. 
It's a massive statement. And why in the end of this, they want to pick up stones and they want to kill him. Unless you believe that I am, unless you believe that I am the son of God, right? John 21, purpose of the book, you will die in your sins. So of course, inversely, how do we not die in our sins? You are gonna have to believe in him. You're gonna have to eyes to see the light and follow. So Jesus warns here with the reality, outer darkness, hell, judgment, they are in darkness simply because they do not follow. When he says there in verse 20 that he is going away, he means he's going to die. He's going to rise again. He's going to go to the Father and they cannot follow him. And he's warning them, if they persist in their blind rejection of him, of the light of the world, they'll perish away from God in hell, outer darkness forever. And that's what makes verse 24, I think, so beautiful that he says, but there's a way of escape. There's hope. Unless you believe that I am. So even you think of that, it isn't just believing in Jesus as a good man or a good teacher or a good philosopher. No, it's Jesus as savior, but even more than that, what kind of savior? He is God himself who has died for your sin. That is, he paid for your sins so that you wouldn't have to be to bear the penalty of that sin. It's massive. And I only give them a little bit of grace to say the concept that I am, that Yahweh would die for them seems completely mind boggling, which it is, except for knowing that it is in God's nature that he is loving and he is kind. And so where do you see that love? Where do you see that mercy most brightly demonstrated? Where are we gonna see the light of the world most brightly shining? We're gonna see it shining most brightly in the reality of that gospel truth that it is atoning death. So the fourth kind of major point in this section is that Jesus will shine brightest. That is the light of the world will shine brightest in his atoning death. Verse 25. They're getting after the real question, right? So they're saying to him, who are you? And Jesus said to them, what have I been saying to you from the beginning? There's enough clarity here. Do they understand how it's all going to work out? Do they have all the details? No, but the who are you question, the Pharisees worked it out, or at least who he's claiming to be. Who are you? Pretty important question. What have I been saying to you from the beginning? I have many things to say and to judge concerning you. And, but he who sent me is true. And the things which I heard from him, these I am saying to the world. And they did not know that he had been speaking to them about the Father. They seemed to not connect all the dots completely. But he simply says to them, verse 28, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am. And I do nothing for myself. He's gonna lay down his life. I do nothing for myself because that's the Father's will and his perfect timing. He says, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. Verse 29, and he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. He's saying, and you kind of see the summary, that many 
are going to believe as he's speaking these things, many believed in him. The call is that you would see him as the light, seek him, to know that he and the Father are one, that he is truly the Son of God, and that by seeing the light, following the light, you receive life and life eternal. So I find it encouraging that we come here to the end and it is still there that many have believed. But Jesus is, and it's gonna be demonstrated throughout the rest of this book, the light of the world and he's gonna shine the brightest when? At the end of his ministry when he bears sin, your sin on the cross. When he takes what you deserve, the penalty you deserved, that you might have life in him if you believe and if you trust in him. So Jesus is the light of the world and that light is going to be blazing at the cross. And then in the resurrection when Christ validates it and he raises him from the dead. Well, light is not the absence of darkness. Rather, as we said, darkness is the absence of light. That is, light is independent. It is source. It comes, it breaks through and pushes everything else away. And the promise, back to verse 12. You follow it, you will never walk in darkness again. That is, you will not die. You will have life. Why? Because you'll have the light of life. The life of light, where does that come from? Chapter one, verse four, it comes from God himself through Christ to us. It's independent. The world can't touch it. And that's why Jesus will later be able to say another one of the I am statements in John 14. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Well, he is the light of the world and he is shining most brightly when we look even this morning to these elements as we celebrate the Lord's table and remember what he has done in his body and what he has done for us in the shedding of his blood and the new covenants. Let's meditate on these things as we look towards this reality of what Christ has done for us. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your table this morning and we even see a reminder as we see just the masterful teaching of Christ and using these images of water, of light. And we know even from the very beginning when the world was void and formless, that it was you who said, let there be light. The picture of life and light coming into the world. And even though darkness came in sin in the garden, Lord, that you have offered a way of escape. That even in this reality of judgment that we either will pay for our sin ourselves or we need someone to pay for our sin for us. The reminder here that every single person will perish, die in their sin unless someone bears that sin. And we even see here so clearly the words of Christ as he points to say, unless you believe that I am, that is that he is God, we die in our sins. Or we profess as your church that we believe these things to be true, that Jesus is the Son of God. 
and that he died for sin. He was perfect in every way, a perfect substitute, a blameless lamb sacrificed for his people, Lord, and that you vindicated him, raised him from the dead, Lord, and that you have sent out your spirit, the comforter, as we'll see in the coming weeks, and those who trust and believe in him to do your work and your ministry in the world through your church. We are so thankful. We just pray this in your son's name. Amen.